So, with that being said, let's jump in to the message this morning. I'm excited to get to preach. Um, so if you're a first-time guest with us, I'm Pastor Chris. I'm our executive pastor at Destiny. Uh, pastor Lawrence, our lead pastor, is out doing ministry uh, at another church this morning. So want to be able to jump in right into the message. So if you got something to take notes with, grab your Bibles, grab your notes, uh, and it is going to be a great morning. So I want to talk about what it means to have true fulfillment. Now, how many of you guys realize there's a lot of things in life that we can try to f fill ourselves with, right? And I, I actually saw a video the other day um, that really hit me because I was thinking about the message that was coming. And he was talking about, you know, what are some of the most important things in life? And what would you do? And people were like, what are the main priorities that you need? And one of the things that was one of the top things that was said was money, right? How many of you guys think financial need is a big need, right? It is. It is a legitimate big need, but it's not even in your top five. And I thought it was really interesting. He was, he was talking, and he was like, yeah, a lot of people think, you know, if I had more money, if I had more of this, like, life would be better. He said, it's not even your top five. For example, and I want to ask you these questions. I want you to think about it because it really hit me. If I said I'd give you a million dollars right now, but it meant you had to die tomorrow, would you take it? No. So life's more important. What if I could give you a million dollars today, but it meant you needed to be in the hospital for the rest of your life? Would you take it? No, so your health's more important. I'd give you a million dollars today, but it meant one of your family members had to die. Would you take it? Depends on the family member. <laughs> a loved one had to die. Let me rephrase it. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, right? So relationships are more important. We put such a high value on money and things, but the truth of it is when we compare it to the things that matter most, it pales in comparison. But often the frustration of what we feel like we need at the moment overshadows the true meaning in the life that God's given us. So I want to dive into that a little bit, um, and this may seem like an odd story for where I'm setting us up, but don't worry, I promise it'll, it'll make sense when we get there. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We're going to read verse 1 through 20. Um, so we're going to go through this chunk of Scripture, and then I'm going to go back and point a couple things out, and we're going to jump in this morning. Now, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found anyone believing the way, both men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank while he was praying. What? I'm sorry. 
And he saw a vision of a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered the Lord. I skipped a whole section there. I am sorry. Never ate, never ate or drank. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, get up and go to a street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in, laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. So Ananias, let's skip to verse 17 because I thought this was interesting. So Ananias departed and entered the house. After laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road when you were coming has sent me that you would regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were in Damascus and immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue. Now want to make sure we are all on the same page here. This is talking about Saul, who later in Acts 13 would be known as Paul, who also wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Now, here's the thing that I want to point out. True fulfillment doesn't come from this unending pursuit of what you think you need to do. It comes from an obedience to God even when it doesn't make sense to you. And I want to make that comparison because a lot of times we, anybody else in here, you make plans for life and it needs to go this way and here's how I want my job to go and here's how I want my life to go and here's how I want things to look. And then something gets off course and you're like, it's all ruined. God, what am I going to do? Like it's not going as planned. Anybody ever get there? Anybody fast forward, it's like, oh, I see what you did there. You could have told me back then, <laughs> right? Sometimes that's part of the adventure, though we don't always like it. And this is the point that I want to make. Saul, from his perspective, was doing everything right to the point that he was persecuting Christians because he didn't believe Jesus was truly the Son of God, are you with me? He was so bent on his perspective that he didn't even see Jesus until Jesus showed up right in front of him in a dramatic way, right? How many of you guys think that's probably going to get your attention? You're on your way somewhere, flashing light, and you're blind for three days. I would definitely have my attention. But the person I really want to talk about for a moment isn't Saul. It's Ananias. You've got a guy who loved the Lord, who was a disciple, who was teaching, who was following God, and the Lord says to him in a dream, go to the street called Straight, find this guy, and he's like, hold up, Jesus, I know this guy. He's the guy that kills Christians. Yeah, that's the one. Go to him. And Okay, well, what do you want me to do when I go to him? Real simple. This is the guy that kills Christians. People who follow Jesus, he makes sure that they're bound and killed. So you're going to go to him and say, hey, I'm the guy that follows Jesus, and Jesus sent me to you. I'm sorry, what? 
right? Like, let's look at it from Ananias for a second. Like, you, you want me to go where, to talk to who, and tell them what? Like, whoa, he told him, go find him. He's been praying. He saw a vision. Ananias does it, and I love it. When he gets there, he says, Ananias entered the house. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, sent me. Like, he's like, okay, Jesus, if we're doing it, I'm all in. I know you kill people that follow Jesus, but hey, you know, Jesus had talked to you. He sent me. Here I am. I don't know about you, but I bet that was a terrifying conversation. I, I bet I'm saying that with much more confidence than he probably had, at least for me. If it was me walking, like, hey, Saul. Oh, he's blind. Good. I'm going to stand on this side, like, just in case he swings. I don't know what's going to happen, right? Like, to me, I'm, like, thinking this out, like, I don't know. But he begins to pray for him. Immediately, the scales fall from his eyes. He can see, and he's baptized. And this is such a dramatic change. Like, I love it. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus and immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue. How weird did that have to be? Like, it doesn't talk about the other people, but for a second, let's just think about this. Ananias, go to him. Okay, I'm going to go, but I know who this guy is, right? And we know he was hesitant, right? It says the scales fell off, he was baptized. Now he spent several days with the disciples. Can you imagine Ananias walking Saul into the room with all the other disciples following that? Like, whoa, what's going on? Like, why did you bring him here? Like, there had to be some confused conversation about what is going on. Some of y'all need to follow me. What is going on? Why did you bring that guy in here? Mm. Sound familiar? Whoa, 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 why is that person in here? Do you know what they've done? Do you know who they are? See, here's the beauty of it. It doesn't matter who you were because Jesus defines who you are. And that's the thing. When Saul has this interaction with Jesus, it literally transforms him immediately. I love that. It literally, like that's exactly what it says. He was baptized and immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. Anybody ever felt like you weren't qualified to do what God asked you to do because you didn't know the Bible well enough or you didn't know how to preach well enough or you didn't know how to sing well enough? Anybody in the room? He didn't go through a four-year seminary degree he didn't go through, now, don't get me wrong. He was a Jew who knew the Bible well. That's why he was persecuting Jesus. He knew Scripture, but he just didn't know Jesus. But the moment he knew Jesus, all of a sudden his conversation changed. See, this is the thing. I don't know about you, but when I read my Bible, often when I read about Paul or the disciples, like, I put them up here. Anybody? Like, I mean, it's like, man, if you live like Paul or, man, one of those disciples, as long as it's not Judas, I'm good. Right? And we kind of put them up here. But can we be honest for a moment? These guys had issues. Every one of them. We talk about Paul. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. 
and was converted while trying to kill Christians. You don't understand what I've done in my past, Pastor Chris. Was it killing Christians? Because I'm pretty sure you're good. Like, think about it for a minute. No, I mean, it was real bad, though. Let's see. He re Jesus redeemed prostitutes, thieves, even people who were killing Christians. I understand you've done some stuff. We all have. That's the beauty of God's grace, and I love that God chose the people that he chose because it shows that he can use any of us no matter how messed up we are. Like, we put people on a pedestal, and it's like, oh, but they're this. Oh, they were the disciples. Like, they became what we have in our mind as the disciples. But when they walked with Jesus, we're talking teenagers, for starters. We only, I'm not even, this ain't part of my message. I'm not going to go deep into this, but only one of the disciples we know for a fact was over the age of 20, possibly two. All the rest were between 13 and 18 years old. Like, we're not talking about well-established men of God. No, like we are talking teenagers that barely knew what they were doing. How do I know that? Well, one chopped the dude's ear off when things got heated. I know that, and he was the oldest one in the group. Well, how do I, I mean, but that doesn't mean all of them had issues. I mean, maybe not, but James and John are in the boat with Jesus, and people were mocking him on the side, and he said, hey, can we call down lightning and kill him? Like, let's be real for a moment. There's a lot when you look at the disciples. There's a lot when you look at Paul. But can I point something out? Every one of them weren't people on these pedestals. They were simply people who loved Jesus, surrounded themselves with other people who loved Jesus, and didn't discard anyone else who didn't. Really important. Side note. The biggest problem in the church today, can I just be honest for a moment, is not the abundance of sin in the world around us. It's really not. The biggest issue that we face in the church today is religious Pharisees that sit here and think we've got it all figured out. Because we don't. I mean, even look back, well, what about the bad people in the bottom line? Let's look at it. Jesus wasn't even crucified by the sinners. He was crucified by the religious Let's get real for a moment. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus loved sinners. He spent time with sinners, but he surrounded himself with the disciples. Be really careful because a lot of times we use that as an excuse. That I'm going to spend my time and my life doing what I want because I'm trying to reach the lost. No, no, no. Jesus loved the lost. He reached the lost, but he surrounded himself. With the people that were going the same direction he was, the people who loved God. And that's part of what got you there. This is the thing that I love. Paul gets this amazing revelation of who Jesus is, and he begins to proclaim the gospel immediately, but we skip for several days. He was with the disciples in Damascus. In the midst of that, he has this incredible encounter, and then he what? Pushes into other people who also love Jesus. 
You don't have to have it all figured out. You've just got to love Jesus and surround yourself with people that are trying to go the same place you're going because they'll help you along the way. They'll help you get there. But the thing is, true fulfillment isn't going to come from money. It's not going to come from your job. It's not going to come from the title. It's going to come from the relationships that God has entrusted to you and the personal encounter that you have with Jesus. You want to be fulfilled, you're going to have to have a true relationship with Jesus, not just know about him, but you've got to know him. There's a lot of us that know scripture, but we don't necessarily know Jesus, and that's a problem. If I can quote scripture, but I don't know the God of the scripture, I'm missing something. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't know scripture. You need to know scripture, okay? <laughs> but I'm saying you need a personal relationship with the author. And that's vital to becoming who God's called you to be. Power and obedience builds confidence. Can, I can't even imagine the amount of confidence Ananias had to have to go to Saul and say, hey, I know you're killing Christians, but I am one, and I'm here to pray for you. Like, think about how nervous we get when God tells us, hey, go pray for that person because they're sick. But what if they don't get healed right then? Can I, can I help with something really quick? Because this helped me, and I still struggle with it. I've never in my life had Jesus or God speak to me to go heal someone, ever, because I don't heal anyone. I've many times had God speak to me to go pray for someone. Don't confuse your role. What if I pray for them and they don't get healed? My job wasn't to heal them. My job was to pray for them. Let God do his job, and I'll do mine. Like we got to be really careful because sometimes we start putting God's job on us and it keeps us from doing what God's asking you to do. God sent Ananias to pray for Saul, not to go heal his blindness, to go pray for him, and he would be healed. His obedience opened the way for God's power to move. Are you with me? Your obedience simply paves the way. That's it. You didn't do it. You didn't make it happen. We just walked in obedience and it allowed God to move in a new way. See, we've got to learn to walk in obedience, and our confidence in God comes from getting in a place of obedience where we get before the Lord and we hear the Lord, and man, God, that terrifies me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Real fulfillment isn't by having your whole life together. It's by simply knowing that no matter what decision I make, I'm going to follow God and I'm going to trust him and I know that he's got me no matter what that looks like. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean it's always going to work out the way you thought it was going to work out. That doesn't mean, can, can we just step away from what so many people have bought into as the gospel, that doesn't mean you're going to be financially blessed. It doesn't mean that your house is going to get bigger. It doesn't mean everything's going to work out great because you're following Jesus, because the disciples followed Jesus. Most of them were murdered. Well, that was encouraging, Pastor Chris. That's the point. Here's the beauty of it. We don't live in that time right now in America I can go into any grocery store and I can go up and ask somebody to pray for them. And most likely, 
that interaction is going to go pretty well. I'm not going to be drugged to the street, beat, flogged, and killed in this country. Then why are we so scared to tell people about the Jesus that we love and know that can transform people's life when we have the opportunity to do it in a platform, in a way that so many people across this world would and are literally dying for. I want to challenge you with a thought. I've referenced it a couple times. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. We, we know that. I mean, you guys have heard that before. I want to challenge you with something. Do you realize Paul didn't sit down to write two-thirds of the New Testament? What are the, what are the letters that Paul wrote that we make up two-thirds of the New Testament? They're what? They're letters to churches. They're letters to pastors. Hear me. He was simply living in a way so connected to the presence of God that he was so inspired that as he wrote letters to friends, it became two-thirds of the New Testament. These were letters to friends. He wasn't planning to write the Bible. He was writing to churches. He was writing. How does he start off most of the letters? Dear so-and-so. Can't wait to see you again. What, what, this is a letter to someone he's in relationship with. This is a letter to friends. Here's what I see what's going on. It, it's a really good rule if you want to look at your relationships and friendships. Let's look at Paul's letters for one. He encourages them. He talks about Jesus, but he also calls out the junk that he sees going on in their life. True relationships going to call you out at times. True relationships going to be able to get in your face and say, listen, I love you, but that's messed up. you got to have the hard conversations to truly be who God's called you to be. It's going to take you walking in a place of obedience that's uncomfortable, and it's going to take you having relationships around you that are not just going to tell you you're doing everything right because can we all be honest? We don't do everything right most of the time. Let's jump to Saul for just a second here. We talked about Ananias and his willingness, but let's talk about the humility of Saul. You got a guy who's been killing Christians who literally is at the mercy of Ananias. He is blind and led by his hand to go see someone who he has been trying to kill so that God could then empower him (laughs) to be who he called him to be. Let's not overlook the importance of humility in who God's called you to be. Because the humility that Saul carried here was massive. To be able to come to Ananias and, like, I can't even imagine that conversation on the other side of it. Like, it totally makes sense for Ananias to be like, yeah, but he kills Christians. Like, you want me to talk to him? But then Saul is like, okay, the guys you've been trying to murder are going to come pray for you, and that's how you're going to be healed. He's like, oh, crap. Right? So now my ability to see is based on the people that I've been trying to kill. Great. That's going to go well. (laughs) I, 
can't even imagine being on that side of how humble he had to be of like, oh, man, how I've missed it. Like the next few days where he's with the disciples, like I can't even imagine that interaction. Knowing how wrong you've been. But now enjoying the hospitality of the people you persecuted, like the internal conflict that he had to have right here of just feeling like he totally failed at that point. But still in the midst, having the joy of knowing who Jesus is, that he immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue. Now, can, can I point something out here? Like, Saul was well known. Keep in mind, like, he's there to what? Persecute Christians. He's now in the synagogue preaching the gospel, telling about Jesus. He now went from being the guy persecuting them to having the literal biggest target on his back. Because not only, I'm assuming all of the people who follow Jesus knew exactly who he was because he'd been trying to kill them for a while. So there's got to be some skepticism there. But then all of the Romans and all of the people who have been hunting and persecuting Christians up to that point knew who he was. Why? Because he was leading them. Like, I can't even imagine the confidence in Jesus that he had to have to say, look, I may die today, but you don't understand what happened to me yesterday, so I've got to speak out about it today. The beauty in the understanding of how life transforming that one interaction with Jesus was on the road that literally knowing firsthand I might die for going into the synagogue and saying Jesus is the way. But I had such a life-changing encounter yesterday that I've got to stand up today and let you know about it. That's how we should live our life, like, When Jesus gets in the mix, it should begin to mess up a lot of things. It should mess up the way we live our life. It should mess up the way we spend our money. It should mess up the way we do everything, the relationships that we have, the way we parent, the way we treat our spouse, the way that we plan a vacation. Everything should be transformed because Jesus is in the middle of it now. Don't get me wrong. When I say plan our vacation, I'm not saying like, okay, guys, next summer we're going to pack up and we're going to go visit a monastery so that we can. That's not what I'm saying like it needs to transform and do, okay? But there's a big difference between the way I lived my life before I knew Jesus and the way I lived my life after. That's what I'm getting at. What you do on that vacation and where you go is what I'm getting at. Like, we've got to understand that when Jesus gets in the mix, it begins to change things. And a lot of times we discount ourselves and think we're not capable or we're not able. Last thing, I'm going to begin to close with this. But, you know, I thought this was really interesting. I was looking through some statistics and things, and I want to talk to you about a couple people really quick. Anybody ever heard of a dude named Babe Ruth? Guy was known as the home run king. I love this story. Home run king. 
more than 700 home runs. Like, that's impressive. More than 1,400 strikeouts. Dude was not the home run king. He was absolutely the strikeout king because he'd struck out twice as much as he ever got it right. Just matters on what you focus on. In life, you may fail twice as much as you succeed, but if you focus on your failures, you'll be frustrated. If you focus on your success, you might be known for them. It's biblical. Do you know that? Though a righteous man falls, he gets back up. What? Though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. What does that mean? What's the mark of the righteous? Really important that we get this. What's the mark of the righteous? That they get back up. Not that they never fall. What's the verse say? Though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. It doesn't say the righteous man never falls. It says when a righteous man falls, he gets up. It's not that you will never fail in life. It's not that you will never miss it. The mark of pursuing Jesus is not that you will never do it wrong. It's that when you do, you will get it up and try to do it right. That's the beauty of it. So I love that. We look at it, we can look at him and see that, look, dude was known as the home run king because he kept trying, because he kept getting up, and he did it right sometimes. Like, that really is it. The beauty of it, our youngest son, Rowan, played t-ball for a little bit. I remember going to t-ball games and being out there and watching them hit. And it's, it's awesome. You ever watch a little kid play t-ball? It's amazing. Like, they hit it, and they don't even know where they're going. They take off Lord knows what direction. It may not even be following a line. Right? And they get out there. They don't know. Like, they might touch a base. Maybe not. It's beautiful because it is utter chaos. But you know the thing that really struck me? These kids would come up and they would try to learn and they would put the tea on the home plate. And they would try and they would, it might hit the ball, maybe. But do you know what's not or what is the same in T-ball and in the pros? that really got my attention, home plate's about 17 inches. That's it. It's the same home plate in T-ball that it is in the pros. The only thing that changes is their ability to play. The only thing that changes is how well-defined the game becomes in them, how much they hone their skill, how much better they get because they continue to practice. The goal never changes, literally. Home plate is the same, whether it's T-ball or the pros. It doesn't matter. The objective is the same, whether you're starting or you're a pro. It doesn't matter. When you're a Christian, the objective is the same, whether you just met Jesus or you've been with him for 60 years. The objective is the same. The only thing that's different is your knowledge of the game. You're going to learn and you're going to get better but you're still going to strike out. You may give it everything you've got, but they got you out on third this round. That's fine. How great would a major league play? Could you imagine a major league game? 
Guy gets up, hits it. It is out of the park. Nope. Guy jumps off the back wall, snags it. That's it. I'm done. Walks out of the field, quits, and never plays again. That'd be horrible. We would have no baseball because everybody quit. Nobody would even make it to the pros. And it sounds utterly ridiculous when I say it. But we live our life as Christians the same way. Man, God, I know you want me to do this, but I blew it. I missed it. I guess I'm done. Where'd you get that from? Like, from what? Jesus used the most misfit, broken, messed up people. The band can start to come back up. He used the most broken people and did the most extraordinary things. I love this quote. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. It says, hardship often prepares ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. The trouble you face in your life is not to break you, it's to build you. And God will use everything that you face. Please hear me. God will use everything that you're facing to bring you to a better place. That does not mean that God did whatever is messed up going on in your life right now to make a point. We miss that a lot. God's not doing it to you to punish you, but he will bring you through it and use it to bring something to glorify him out of. If we're willing to allow him to, if we're willing to listen, if we're willing to be obedient when it doesn't make sense, if we're willing to be obedient when it's painful, if we're willing to be obedient even if we don't know the outcome. Fulfillment doesn't come from your perfection. It comes from your obedience. It's that simple. If we can simply learn to love Jesus and follow him, then we'll begin to see our lives transform and change on a much deeper level. So here's what I want to ask, if you would, Bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're in here today and the truth of it is you say, you know, I look at my life and I look at my relationship with Jesus and one of two things, either one, I don't have a relationship with Jesus and I want to, or two, you know who he is, but you don't truly know him like you wish you did. And I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. God, I pray right now for every person of the courage to lift their hand. God, I pray that you would help us to truly know the relationship that you want to have with us, God, that you would draw us in and take us deeper that we would know you more intimately than we have ever imagined. God, I pray that as we begin to know you, that we would truly allow you to transform every step of our life each and every day, that we would become more and more like you in everything that we do. 
God, help us, heal us, forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to ask if you guys would, I'll stand to your feet. I want to give you your action point for the week. You know, talking about relationship and the people that God's brought into your path, I want to encourage you. Let's come to the table with somebody this week, exploring a deeper place of worship, making relational effort to know God's heart together. Make it simple, guys. Just get with somebody and talk about Jesus this week. You don't have to overcomplicate it. You don't have to get down, get together and read three chapters and interpret the Greek. Just sit down and talk about your love for Jesus. Let him deepen you. You never know what may come out of the conversation. So in that, let's press into a place of worship as we close. If we really want to know him deeper, then the best opportunity is to meet him face to face. So he's here right now. As we conclude, let's press into worship for just a little bit longer.